Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to From Men About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey on all things fermented. Archived on Stitcher, iTunes, and right here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Mary and I are fresh back from Durham, North Carolina, where she did uh, some great presentations uh, on speed brewing and where her head was projected on the wall on the Jumbotron <laughs> Bigger than I've ever seen her. It was pretty awesome. This was the All About Beers World Beer Festival at the the, uh, Durham Bulls Park. That's right. The new park. Hit the bull, win a steak. Hit the grass, win a salad. Did you ever figure out what that meant? Not no. exactly, no. <laughs> all right, let's go. Let's go to some announcements. All right, first of all, um, I think I had mentioned this, that our local homebrew store, Bitter Nesters, did a speed brewing competition. Um, so all, all of the entrants used recipes from my book or recipes that were inspired by the book they all had to be made in i think three weeks or less so congratulations to the winners i helped judge and it was awesome uh, it was super cool to see both my recipes being made by other people and then also um riffs on the recipes so congratulations to evie for first place she had a guava soda Second place was Josh and Shauna. They made a ginger chai tea mead. And third place was Katerina and Sean. They made an elderberry herbal mead that was back sweetened lightly. Um, and then honorable mention to Ian for a cucumber saison and Jeremy for a mead with tangerine peel. So that was super fun. That's not the only awesome stuff that's <laughs> happened with your recipes lately. Out in Long Island at Libme, the Long Island Beer and Malt Enthusiast, they have a competition. Is it yearly or, or, or seasonally? I don't know. Anyway, That's the they, part have a, I don't they have a giant sword that it's a saber. Uh, it's, a, it's, not, it's a it's a righteous sword. It's not exactly <laughs> a saber. It's, it's pretty righteous. It's a full on sword. The, the winner of the homebrew competitions end up uh, with their name engraved on this sword, and um, the winner cool. of this, Chris Dolan, who is now actually a brewer at Blue Point Brewing Company, he made my bananas foster short boche recipe and took the competition, which is awesome because he. Beat out it's a bunch of beers. So bananas, Foster, <laughs> short mead, boucher. Short boucher. Yeah. How, how do you make that? What? What? So a boucher gist? is just what, a caramelized. It's just a caramelized honey. So you caramelize the honey first. So you basically simmer it or boil it for a period of time until it gets dark and caramelly and has uh, more flavor, just like you would caramelize a sugar. And you're turning some of those sugars into non-fermentable sugars, increasing the body and, and giving them that yeah. caramelic taste. Yeah, a little bit of color. Um, and then I used um, freeze-dried bananas and a little bit of rum. And hit it with champagne yeast? Yeah. Champagne well, yeast. It's really <laughs> easy, fast, And delicious. now it's officially an award-winning <laughs> recipe, which is yes. cool. Yes. <laughs> um, okay, the other announcement that we have uh, back to Bitter Nesters. They are having Ales for ALS, Great Beer for a Great Cause event, October 29th at 6.30 p.m. So those of you who are homebrewers might have heard of this. Ales for ALS is a collaboration between Loftus Ranches, 
uh, YCH hops and homebrewers around the country. So basically, they are um, offering up the new variety of hops, HBC 438, to homebrewers, um, and then you know asking them to brew with it, and then getting feedback. So. They, Bitter Nesters has hooked up with one of our local homebrew clubs, the Bruminaries. Each brewer received two ounces of the HBC 438, and they are brewing Saison, Pale Ale, Belgian IPA, Imperial Red A, American Brown Ale, English Brown Ale, and an English bitter batter, Special Bitter with this hop. So if you want to come see how that hop expresses itself, if you haven't used it or if you have used it and are curious how it works in other styles, come by Bitter Nesters on October 29th at 6.30. It's going to be $10, and there are only 50 tickets available. So go to their site, bitterandesters.com, if you would like to attend to grab your ticket. And every Thursday, henceforth, uh, at Kelso Brewing Company, uh, Kelly Taylor will be in the house um, to, to share... Bottles. It's basically a, a, a unmarked bottle guessing kind of thing. If you guess a the style of a bottle uh, correctly, then you'll get free uh, discounted beer for the rest of the evening in our tap room uh, on Thursday nights. So it's five twenty nine Waverly Avenue in Brooklyn. Uh, we welcome uh, homebrew shares uh, coming down and uh, t- tasting these 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 bottles. But we'd also like to taste your beers. Uh, come on down. Also, happening in Philadelphia, to here to talk about that is Reverend Tim Rosmus from Brooklyn Brewery. How to do, gang? How to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the, the Philly Mash is coming up for the Brooklyn Brewery crew. We're going to be down there from the 17th to the 24th next week. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of folks coming in. We do a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff in a week's time. Uh, we kick off with a free concert Saturday night with Man Man and Prince Rama, which should be pretty awesome. And I really hope that I'm pronouncing Rama correctly. It might be Rama. Not totally sure. Um, and there's dinner parties. There's beer events. There's all sorts of cool stuff going on. And you can check all that out at brooklynbrewerymash.com. And Tim, you're hot off Comic-Con, aren't you? I am indeed. Can you give us just a brief recap of, of what happened there? Comic-Con is always more or less a total sensory overload. <laughs> <laughs> um, but every year we do uh, we do the Defender Project with them where we come up with a, a beer and a character with an illustrator. And we release it for Comic-Con specifically. So this year we worked with Kari Randolph who's drawn, uh, he's drawn the X-Men, he's drawn Batman, he's working on the, an I Am Robin series right now. And this year, for the first time, we're releasing the beer year-round and everywhere. And it's a delicious beer, man. It's awesome. It's a, it's a good red IPA, nice and juicy, and the character's awesome. I wrote the backstory, Kari drew the character, <laughs> and uh, it's coming out in bottles, and they look awesome. They look so cool. And you were on they a do. panel at Comic-Con, right? I was. I, I moderated a panel about uh, creativity and the audience. And there was a bunch of brewers and illustrators kind of coming together and not quite complaining about receiving feedback. <laughs> which is really cool. Uh, it, you know, it was neat. Uh, comics and beer kind of have this parallel thing where both are kind of emerging from the fringes now. You know, 15 years ago, we couldn't come and talk about craft beer, and 10 years ago, there was no Comic-Con. So now you have all of these, like, hardcore, dyed-in-the-wool nerds butting up against the mainstream that are drinking these beers, reading these comics. And it's interesting to see how that friction comes back to the creators and how they're trying to kind of appease both sides of that. Right on. By nerds, you mean enthusiasts, right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Nerds, geeks, however you label yourself. However, whatever we call ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've been a proud nerd since marching band, so I don't feel bad throwing <laughs> yes. it out there. And there is also actually the All About Beer, the current issue, has an article about 
kind of comic and beer and yeah, along yeah it's, these it's lines. a very so, intertwined world. Yeah, definitely. It's always cool. We're always Chris and I are always interested in you know kind of the intersection between craft and beer or other crafts and beer. Yeah, <clears throat> beer does intersect with a lot of different crafts and, and uh, fermentation is one of them, and all sorts of fermentation. There's there's a lot of crossover through that, um, and which brings us to our guest for today. So a few weeks ago, we, I, I'm sure we've mentioned this on the show, we attended an absolutely amazing uh, workshop. Chris got to attend at one, and I got to attend two. Uh, but David Asher, who is cheese guru at Black Sheep Cheese Making, School of Cheese Making. I don't have that in front of me right now. Yes, I do. Okay. And then also writ, wrote this amazing book called The Art of Natural Cheese Making. So slow food kind of brought co-sponsored and brought him into town he did a series he did a lecture on friday night at crown finish caves in brooklyn and then did four different cheese making classes classes throughout the weekend and i will say i've i've taken a, a ricotta workshop before but cheese making is very intimidating even to somebody who's you know i'm pretty hot on fermenting i've fermented a, a lot of beverages and bread you know bread sauerkraut but cheese making has always been a little bit more intimidating and i think that's true for everybody and i gotta say david asher completely turned me on to a whole new world and chris and i both came out of that with with an absolute desire absolutely. to start making cheese as soon as as soon as this wedding is over we're gonna start cheese making so welcome to the show david asher here to talk about david asher <laughs> is david asher thank you what a great introduction <laughs> happy to be here back and, in brooklyn yeah, you're back in brooklyn absolutely <laughs> and and totally sincere i mean it it was a mind-blowing uh class for me so first of all tell us who you are and where are you uh so uh, i'm i'm based out in british columbia uh i run my uh my uh, traveling cheese school out of uh, the, the west coast of British Columbia, Canada. But I, I'm currently on the road uh, touring, cheese touring around uh, Ontario, uh, actually doing some consulting right now with a, a sheep cheese maker in central Ontario, showing them how to make a, a more natural cheese. When we talk about natural cheese, um, what was your journey? What, how did you get to where you're going? Right? Or how did you get so into cheese? And fermentation. And fermentation well, and do it, do it your DIY. I've been I've been I've been fermenting for a really 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 long time about ten fifteen years now, and uh, my first fermentations were uh, sourdough uh, sourdough bread baking uh, uh, sauerkraut making and kefir making, um, and I, I've been keeping those cultures at home for a really long time. Uh, really enjoying the, the nuances and, and development of flavors in these really wonderful traditional ferments, um, but I didn't really realized I could make cheese until someone showed me that they, you could do it at home without any specialized tools or equipment that you didn't need any uh, you didn't need a, 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 like a, a cheese cave you didn't need a factory setting to do it you could, you could do it in your own home kitchen and I, I uh, this one cheesemaker kind of showed me the way of cheese um, and I, I took this inspiration with me back home and started on my very own cheese making journey awesome so what do you mean by so your book is titled the art of natural cheese making what what do you mean by the art of natural cheese making? So, um, I practice a, I think a, a, a different style of cheese making from what most North Americans practice, and I, I proclaim my my cheese making to be much more natural than the standard practiced in North America, which I call uh, kind of an industrial style cheese making. Um, now, uh, my methods are very different because I uh, I cultivate the cultures of cheese, whereas most cheese makers, when they uh, make their cheese, whether they be uh, uh, large-scale industrial cheesemakers or artisanal cheesemakers, uh, they source the culture of their cheese 
um, packages of freeze-dried culture, just like you'd uh, source the culture for uh, brewing a certain beer from like a package of uh, freeze-dried yeast. Uh, now, in my cheese making, I encourage people to keep all the cultures that uh, they can use to make their cheese happen. And I show folks uh, in the book how they can use kefir as a starter culture for making a wide variety of cheeses, and how they can easily cultivate the, their, the different by uh, different ripening cultures that help cheeses evolve their particular flavors. Awesome. So a lot more, a lot more of a traditionally inspired cheesemaking, um, and uh, a lot more fun to practice at home uh, than like the sterile, uh, freeze-dried uh, cheesemaking that's practiced by uh, by most cheesemakers in the U.S. and it's uh, preached by most of the cheesemaking guidebooks that are out there. And what really this style of cheesemaking is replicating more um, how cheese make how cheese making has originally been done all across the world and how these different of uh, styles of cheese developed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I, I, my inspiration for, like, for the, the ideas behind the book were that um, uh, cheesemakers uh, historically were able to make all the different styles of cheeses that we know and love uh, without the use of commercial freeze-dried cultures. Like every cheese we know, every cheese we know, every cheese we make was invented before we had a, uh, a scientific understanding of the microbiology and chemistry involved in cheesemaking. And uh, I went out and sought, sought out the traditional methods for making different styles of cheese. And the book is... Uh, a distillation of all of those different methods that I've been exploring in the past 10 years of cheese making. Awesome. Yeah. Why kefir? And what is kefir? Because So obviously there's a lot of people that might be listening that are familiar with kefir. We've done a, a milk kefir show before, but a lot of people don't know what it is. It's not as uh, common of a culture as even a, a kombucha scoby. So what is kefir and why? So uh, kefir is, is a fascinating uh, dairy culture. Uh, it's like a traditional yogurt from Central Asia, but really it's more of a fermented milk. That's kind of what I call it, a fermented, fermented milk. And it's, it's made by taking kefir culture, adding it to milk, and uh, letting the milk ferment for 24 hours. And the milk thickens up to a beautiful buttermilk-like texture with a, a little bit of effervescence and a little bit of alcohol. Um, and uh, it's a really delicious probiotic drink. Uh, and also a wonderful cheese-making starter that contains a, a really broad diversity of microorganisms that can help cheeses evolve their particular characters. And uh, the, the, one of the most distinguishing things about the kefir culture, and many people who drink kefir may not know about this, because uh, uh, when you're drinking kefir you get from the grocery store, it's not actually true kefir made with real kefir culture. It's made with packages of freeze-dried starter, much like most of the cheese made in North America. But kefir... Uh, traditional kefir is made with what's known as with a culture that's known as a kefir grain, and it's just, kefir grains like a, it's a scoby, like a kombucha mother, only much cuter. <laughs> and these little cauliflower-like <laughs> grains, <laughs> these little cauliflower-like grains that grow in milk, uh, you put them into you ferment the milk into kefir, into kefir or kefir, and then you take the the grains out, the kefir grains out, put them into some more milk, and they ferment that milk into kefir again, and you can kind of keep this culture going over and over and over again feeding it every day, and, and uh, as you feed it, the culture grows and thrives. We're going to take a really quick break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about how to get kefir to cheese. Well, and the ingredients that you need. It really is simple. Fermentable.
1996, Elknife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Hi, this is Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. And you know, I remember my very first show, December 2009. It was a cold winter. And my first guest was William Grimes from the New York Times. Now, the one specific I had to tell him was, wear a hat, gloves, and a warm coat, because our studio had no heat. We had no heat in the winter. We had no air conditioning in the summertime. It was rough going, but we were a startup, and we had a good show, regardless of the fact that we could see our breath. So today, we still have hurdles to climb over, and the only way we can get there is with your help. So if you would please consider being a member and press that little beating heart button in the upper right-hand corner to donate. It's going to help us have heat and electricity and air conditioning and really good sound with really great guests. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Fun Man About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We have David Asher, author of The Art of Natural Cheesemaking, on the line. And we are talking all things cheesemaking. And we've just talked about kefir, milk kefir. And so we, we actually have... Our first intern, Rachel yeah, Jacobs. Say hi, Rachel. Hello. <laughs> so she's sitting in with us for the first time, and she said, where do you get kefir grains? So talk a little bit about that. Sorry, I had trouble hearing you for a moment there. Oh. Uh, you were cutting out. I missed the question. So where do you get kefir grains? Where does one get oh, kefir so, grains? So the, the only way to, 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 I mean, the only way to get kefir grains is to, is to like, really... Uh, is to find someone that's got kefir grains and convince them to share them with you. Um, fortunately, most people are really happy, are really generous with their kefir grains because they've often see them as a gift, and so they're happy to pass them along to anybody who'd like them. And um, uh, there's plenty of people online who uh, breed kefir grains, so you can, uh, you can Google kefir breeders online, and uh, often you just send them twenty dollars cash in the mail, and they'll send you back kefir grains dried. Uh, these dried kefir grains. Uh, come back and put into fresh milk and they'll come back to life again, just like dairy sea monkey. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about yeah. the basic ingredients of uh, cheese making. So the first thing is milk. And it, milk is very important in cheese making. So let's talk about just, you know, most people out there, we go to the grocery store, you buy your milk, you eat your cereal or your oatmeal or whatever, chocolate milk, glass of milk. But there's m- much more to milk than that. So talk about quality milk and the difference in milks. 
Yeah, so, um, so uh, milk um, has a remarkable, uh, uh, remarkable ability to change over time. Um, uh, and milk uh, uh, degrades quite quickly in the refrigerator. And uh, you may not notice it when you're pouring it over your, your Cocoa Pops or your coffee uh, in the morning. But uh, uh, milk, as it sits in the refrigerator, it often uh, sours quite a bit. It becomes, uh, it, it becomes dominated by wild microorganisms that thrive, even in cold temperature. And if milk is, uh, is older, if it's sitting around a long time, it, it doesn't really make good cheese because those wild microorganisms uh, can kind of take over the development of the cheese and give it bitter, weird flavors. So freshness is really, really important when you're sourcing your milk. Um, and, uh, you know, the fresher you can get it, the better, like right out of the udder. Um, warm uh, from, the, from the animal is, uh, is absolute best. Uh, but if you can't get that, you know, the grocery stores are, uh, increasingly have really good uh, milk available for home cheesemakers. Uh, and uh, uh, lots of local producers, I, I noticed when I was uh, in uh, New York City just uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, if you're looking for good milk for cheesemaking, seek out a milk that's as fresh as possible, but also uh, that's processed as little as possible. So preferably a milk that's um, unhomogenized, uh, which really seriously affects its cheesemaking ability. Um, so look for a cream-lined milk. And if you can get it, if you're in a place where raw milk uh, is available, um, uh, raw milk makes a huge difference to the cheesemaking process. And milk that hasn't been processed at all responds best to the cheesemaking process. And in New York, we are not allowed to get raw milk. Well, we can buy raw milk directly from the farm. There are a few states, notably, I believe, Pennsylvania and Connecticut um, in the Northeast, where you can buy. Can, I've bought raw milk in the store in Pennsylvania. Um, but otherwise, oftentimes, you can find another source. You maybe befriend a local farmer. There are some, definitely some uh, underground milk clubs around the country. So it is possible to get really good quality milk. And even if you, even if you can, a lot of the health food stores will have um, just regular pasteurized, not ultra pasteurized, fresh milk. That makes just, a difference. Yeah, just right. you know, you could check your date and get it. You know, as local as possible is is best, obviously. So, depending on what kind of cheese I want to make, can I do it all from kefir as a starter? Yeah, uh, uh, in my experience, um, and in uh, many of my students' experiences, and people I've been working with, uh, kefir. Uh, can serve as a universal starter for making uh, just about every style of cheese. So I use my kefir uh, for making uh, mozzarella, for making uh, uh, cheddars, for making camemberts and bries, for making uh, fresh and aged ghost cheeses. Uh, it really, I mean, it's got all the microorganisms that any cheese needs. It's got a, uh, an array of different organisms, like 70 to 80 different species um, that have been, um, that have been, um, um, Tested in the in the in kefir, and uh, the, the the diversity of microorganisms in kefir is actually really similar to microorganisms that are present in raw milk. Um, and you can use kefir as a starter culture in making cheeses, and and the cheeses will take on a, a very strong raw milk-like character, even if uh, the milk is pasteurized. And you and what how you ex- what you explain in your workshop as well as uh, in the book is that you're basically manipulating, you know, your after. Uh, uh, you're manipulating this milk that has the kefir um, using rennet, which we're going to get to in a second. But you're basically manipulating that in order to kind of select for these specific organisms to get a particular type of cheese. That's right. So in a in a tradition in a, in a modern cheese making and in industrial cheese making today, uh, cheese makers will add a particular 
starter culture, a particular single strain of starter culture for making a particular style of cheese. So they'll, they'll, they'll uh, source a different freeze-dried culture for making chef, a different freeze-dried culture for making cheddar, a different freeze-dried culture for making uh, camembert and blue cheese. And all told, if a home cheesemaker wants to follow these techniques, they'll, uh, according to the, the, the industrial cheesemaking book, they'll have to buy uh, 10 or 11 different starter cultures and keep them in their freezer and open them up every time they want to use every time they want to make a particular style of cheese. But with a more traditional uh, cheesemaking method, or a, a kefir cheesemaking method, as I, as I preach, um, using kefir with its diversity of microorganisms um, helps, uh, uh, allows, uh, the, the kefir, excuse me, allows the culture to adapt to many different styles of cheesemaking. And if you're making a, a chev with kefir as a starter culture, the particular conditions that you create when you make that goat cheese allows the right cultures in kefir uh, or raw milk to thrive enables the chef to take on the flavors and character that's known for. And if you want to make a, a camembert, then if you follow the appropriate technique, uh, the right microorganisms in the kefir will come to life and will help the cheese develop the appropriate flavor and the appropriate uh, beautiful uh, white fungal rind on its surface. And uh, the techniques that I, that I practice are uh, traditionally inspired, and uh, surprisingly, uh, they work rather consistently. Uh, there's this idea out there that traditional cheese, the traditional methods of cheese making are inconsistent to make a poor quality cheese. But in my experience, uh, these traditional cultures uh, make a much more flavorful cheese um, and also uh, help the cheese evolve in a much stronger, more resilient way. Uh, uh, and I found that I don't have to cultivate perfectly sterile conditions to make my cheese. But in the industrial method, using these freeze-dried, single-strain cultures, you have to create perfectly sterile conditions so that unwanted microorganisms don't come in and spoil a batch of cheese. And, and that was one thing I was really impressed with in the class is that, you know, you were teaching us um, a particular style, like we went over, I believe, blue cheese. But in the class, you were able to just, you know, kind of riff, and you also made a ricotta, you made fresh cheese curds, and that was kind of unplanned, but you were able to do that because you're, you know... Well, not only do you know everything about natural cheese making, but you know you're starting this with this amazing culture. Uh, so that was something super cool and and was really um, yeah very cool. So let's talk about another ingredient. The other important ingredient is rennet. So what is rennet? Rennet's a, a coagulating enzyme that cheesemakers use to help coax the curds um, out of the milk. Um, and uh, rennet traditionally comes from the uh, fourth stomach of a young calf that has to be for cheesemakers to gain enzyme, access to this enzyme that's naturally present on the young animal's stomach. Um, and uh, the reason why this enzyme is present on a young calf's stomach is because when that young calf is drinking its mother's milk, uh, uh, the young calf transformed its mother's milk into cheese inside its belly as a result of these enzymes uh, on the lining of its stomach. Um, and uh, uh, cheesemakers traditionally uh, would slaughter calves or uh, lambs or, or kids, uh, goat kids, that is, um, and uh, dry out the stomach, uh, known as a vel, uh, cure it and dry it out with salt, and then use that vel uh, as the coagulant uh, for making their cheeses. Uh, today, however, the vast majority of cheeses are, are made with microbial rennet. So these are uh, rennet substitutes, often considered uh, vegetarian rennet, so they don't evolve the slaughter of an animal. And uh, in my impression, uh, the, the, these uh, these Microbial uh, rennet replacements aren't as natural um, as uh, the traditional method, and um, 
bring up their own kind of ethical questions that are perhaps uh, even greater than the question of the slaughter of animals uh, or uh, the use of rennet in cheesemaking. Because many of these, many of these uh, rented alternatives are produced by uh, agribusiness and, uh, and uh, uh, chemical cor- corporations. And uh, as, a, as a, like an organic, natural cheesemaker, I'd rather not support um, the corporate agenda in my cheesemaking. Yep. Do they, do they produce a, a similar or equal flavor in the end? They do. They do. They do. I'm just curious if there's a... Yeah. Um, the... the it depends on which coagulant you're talking about. There's a, there's a wide range of them. So, uh, the, 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 the standard uh, microbial coagulant that's used in uh, cheese making today, in, in which 90% of uh, cheese consumed in North America is made from, uh, works in almost exactly the same way as traditional rennet, um, because it, it essentially is the same chemical. It's the, the exact same uh, enzyme, uh, chymosin or chymosin. Um, but the, the, this... Um, this uh, uh, microbial version of chymosin uh, comes from genetically modified organisms. And so uh, using this, uh, uh, this rennet replacement that works the same as calf rennet uh, brings up uh, all sorts of ethical questions. Right. Uh, now, there, there is another rennet, a microbial rennet, that's available on the market, uh, which is also microbial. Um, and um, this particular rennet uh, doesn't work. It's not, it's not genetically modified, so you don't have that question. Uh, but it doesn't work as well as uh, calf rennet. Um, and it, it, it makes the curd a little bit squeaky uh, in texture, a little bit rubbery in texture. And uh, uh, if you age a cheese that's made with this rennet, it kind of takes on bitter, sharp flavors as it ages, which is, aren't as nice as a, a cheese made with a more natural rennet. And this, this natural rennet is available um, pretty easily online. Yeah, yeah there's uh, quite a few producers of it. Uh, but none in North America, surprisingly. Uh, there's no, rennet, no natural rennet production uh, in North America. The rennet I use is, uh, comes from, uh, comes from, uh, o- from uh, Austria, I believe, um, which is where I think one of the last few remaining uh, traditional rennet makers uh, exists. Cool. So let's go to the book. So as I said, I, th- I mean, I think this book is amazing. And as someone who has recently also written a book, it takes a lot of work to, to write a book. So how long yeah. did it take you to write this book? Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, this book is gorgeous. There's a ton of photos. It's incredibly thorough. There's 23 chapters, and you're, you talk, take people through making everything from fresh cheeses such as paneer to blue cheeses, cheddar. You have sourdough bread recipes in there. You have a great right. <laughs> troubleshooting guide. You... And, and everything is very down-to-earth. Like, you really explain how things work. So how long did it take you to write this book? <laughs> um, all told, uh, it, was, uh, it was about about two years from like, when I started writing my, my first chapters for my, uh, um, for, my, uh, for my book proposal to the publishers uh, to when I actually had to finish copy in hand. Um, but it was about probably uh, ten months of writing, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, twelve months of writing, yeah. and uh, and cheese making. Of course, I had to make I had to make all the cheeses uh, that uh, that uh, are featured in uh, all the, the 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 photos of the book. <laughs> and what are I didn't want to I didn't want to cheat and buy any cheeses right. from the grocery store. <laughs> but you know, if I really wanted the the cheese the recipe to shine, I had to show exactly what the cheeses look like uh, if they were made. Absolutely. One of my favorite uh, things that I took home from that class, the two, was that. I'm, as, as a brewer, I'm always scared of cross-contamination, but uh, you have d- different cheeses, you know, 
developing in the same in the same cheese container uh, like your blue is not turning your your other cheeses into a blue yeah um so this goes against the, the, the uh, one of the, uh, the, the the fundamental beliefs of cheese making that like different the different cultures of cheese can contaminate one another and each different style of cheese should be kept in a completely different aging environment because the cheeses are likely to cross-contaminate each other. But in my, in my experience, that, that belief is only true for the industrial style of cheese making using these uh, packaged freeze-dried cultures. And if you use uh, more traditional cultures, you actually, uh, and, and cultivate the right conditions that allow the right cultures to thrive, uh, you can age a blue cheese right next to a white rinded cheese, and the two cheeses won't contaminate each other because uh, each cheese... Um, uh, is the, uh, each cheese has the perfect conditions for the particular cultures that are growing on it to thrive, and uh, they won't uh, mess with, with each other. So, uh, uh, in my cheese cave, I have all these different cultures coexisting really peacefully, and uh, it's really beautiful and inspirational to see. Yeah. And you also explain how anyone can make kind of a mini cheese cave in their own refrigerator in the book, which is awesome. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah. So, so many of the cheeses in the book can be aged just in a in a small. Uh, a plastic container lined with uh, like a bamboo sushi mat uh, that helps preserve uh, the humidity of the cheeses inside. And if you place that container inside a cool environment like a, a fridge or a cool basement, you can create the right conditions for aging uh, cheese. Uh, all they need is uh, low temperatures and uh, high humidity and uh, some care as they're aging. And cheeses will, are actually quite easy. Many cheeses are actually quite easy to ripen to perfection at home. So I, I kind of hate to ask this question because it's often asked of, of me or us. You know, people ask us, what's your favorite beer? Or what's your favorite recipe from the book? But do you have a favorite cheese or two that you just really enjoy making? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. Uh, my favorite is, uh, is uh, Ishev, just uh, straight up uh, fresh goat's cheese. By the way, Mary, this is totally fair because at the beginning of the class, he asked this of us for what our favorite cheeses were. That's true. That's true. That was his first question to us. You're getting your revenge now, right? That's right. Yes. So why Chev? So so Chev is a fresh goat's milk cheese. That's right. So Uh, so it's it's, it's super delicious, like remarkably tasty for a a fresh cheese that's only two days old um, and really, really easy to make. It's It's like a... Uh, something you barely even have to focus on while you're making it. You just have to do a, a little bit here, a little bit there. Um, uh, and uh, after two days, your goat's milk transforms into a beautiful cheese. Um, you just warm up the milk, add some kefir culture, add a tiny, tiny little bit of rennet, just a very, very small dose. Let the milk sit at room temperature to ferment for 24 hours. Uh, and after the curd has set, which doesn't take very long, uh, you then take that curd and strain it into some cheesecloth, let it hang for six hours, mix in some salt, let it hang for another hour, and the cheese is done. And it's delicious. That's, awesome. Yeah. That might be the first thing we make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so where can folks buy your book? So again, it's it's called The Art of Natural Cheese Making. And I will say, I mean, it really is an amazing book. And I we have a, quite a book collection at this point, but it, it definitely has... Um, you know, like I said, and I'm totally sincere with this. I cheese making is very intimidating, even for people that ferment a lot. And um, and your book is absolutely wonderful. So, where can people buy your book? So, um, so my book is available um, at uh, lots of small independent bookstores. Uh, you can find it in many libraries. Uh, you can also find it online at just about every online retailer. Um, and uh, I'd recommend p- picking it up directly from uh, my publisher, Chelsea Green, 
And you can order the book online uh, at their website, chelsegreen.com. Awesome. And uh, there is an Eric out there listening. <laughs> I have a signed copy dedicated to Eric. <laughs> Blessed are the cheesemakers from David. <laughs> there is a little story behind that. No. So also, so you, so you just said you're doing consulting and you give workshops. So if, do you have any upcoming workshops in U.S. or Canada? Ooh, in the north, in the northeast. Um, Let's see, uh, I, I will be having some events uh, this winter um, in uh, February. I'll be scheduling a couple of uh, cheesemaking retreats in Vermont uh, through, Shelburne, through Shelburne Farm. Yep, awesome. Also and, an uh, amazing museum in Shelburne. Oh, I'm really looking forward to being there. Um, and uh, I'll also be doing a class uh, in upcoming weeks uh, in, uh, down, in Maryland, down in Maryland, excuse me, at... Um, at uh, Sally Fallon's farm. Oh, very cool. And so you'll... Yeah, that's, that's in the works. And you'll have both of those on your website, correct? Yes, and you can find more information on that upcoming classes on my website, theblacksheepschool.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, David Asher. And again, any of you who are out there who are interested, you know, been, you've been curious about cheese making, this book is the book to have. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's incredibly readable. And I mean, because there are, there, are, there are other cheese making books out there, they're, but they're also... They're not so friendly to the general fermenting public, and yours is. And I just love the yeah. idea of you know having this culture that you can use over and over again, and um, and you yep make delicious cheeses. So thank yeah, you much so more. much. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Happy to be happy to, happy to talk. Awesome. Well, cheers, and we'll be back next Monday on Fermenting About It. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.